Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Good morning, church. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you had to make a decision and didn't know what to do, but that's where I'm, I am this morning. I, uh, uh, you know, been recovering from this concussion thing, and uh, which has taken way too long. So, uh, and I know you're all praying, and I appreciate that. Uh, but I know the Lord has His timing. Uh, so the downside for me is it's taken too long, but the upside is that the um, protocol is for me to be in a dark room doing nothing. And, uh, you know, the Bible says, be still and know that I'm God. And so the upside is that... uh, the word of the Lord has never been clearer to me, and uh, his or nearer in all my life, and I really, really like that. So I kind of wish you'd hit me on the head years ago. But the downside is I've got about two hours worth of teaching material here. (laughs) And I don't expect that that's realistic. So, Father, we invite your presence. We invite you to come and to guide me through the teaching material that really is what you wanted to say to your people all along. And I am truly grateful for this time in the dark with you. I am truly appreciative, Lord, of your voice, of your sovereign control, and of your love for this little church that you've built up here. Your love for every person. Thank you. So as we come to this time, uh, we, you know, as always, we turn it over to you, Lord, but it just seems somehow substantially more important that you come right now, right here for us. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to continue this morning in the Through the Bible series that we started some time back, and as I promised you, we'll take the Bible in kind of chunks and then take a break from that and go off in other directions as the Lord leads and come back to it. And so right now we're in the section of the Bible from Joshua through 2 Chronicles. And we started that a few weeks back and we'll continue also uh, probably for the next week or two before we finish up 2 Chronicles. And uh, we're going to take the same strategies we have all along. We're going to look at the context, the main storylines, and then Really just focus in on a portion of the Bible, portion of that part of the Bible that we think God wants to use to speak something specifically to us because that's really the power of the whole thing, isn't it? Is God speaking specifically to us through His Word. And so in terms of where we are in First and Second Kings, um, we'll take, which we'll take together as I promised, is when we look at the context of the thing, we're really looking uh, at... Uh, a period of time from the death of King David as it starts to the fall of Jerusalem 
in 587 B.C. And so what this means is that this covers a period of nearly 400 years' time in this first and second kings. And what I find really exciting is now we're getting uh, recent enough so that uh, extra-biblical sources, meaning sources outside of the Bible, can help us with real accuracy date when these things were occurring in human history. And so the death of David is arguably around uh, 960 B.C., and we know for, sh- for certain that the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar was in 587. And so I think it's just kind of exciting that, you know, some of the extra-biblical material corroborates what the Bible says about itself. And it doesn't have to, but to make me, you know, but it's just kind of exciting, yeah? Okay, so there you go. This first and second kings is called kings because it covers the period of kings, almost all of them, from David, who is included in the beginning, uh, all the way through the fall. Uh, And so those would be all the kings of Israel and ultimately Judah, as we'll see, uh, except for the one King Saul that we encountered last week in first and second Samuel. This book was written most likely by the prophet Jeremiah during the 6th century B.C. So, you know, there's a whole book devoted to the prophecies of Jeremiah. And during it, he's calling out to Israel and he's calling out to Judah saying, repent and turn to God. And, of course, they didn't. And so the calamity of the Babylonian captivity came upon them. But it was Jeremiah who was thought to have actually written these words, 1st and 2nd Kings. And so since he lived through that time, particularly through the, through the end time. He didn't live for 400 years, I'm not saying that. But since he lived during the time of the fall, that when you read his accounts of the invasion of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians, it's actually reading more like a CNN report from somebody who's on the scene. Hi, I'm Jeremiah here. I'm giving you a report for what's happening. And so that brings that into perspective. Now, I want you to hold on to this thought for a week or what might turn out to be two because we didn't get very far in this material at nine and uh, they're the fast group so I don't expect to get that far with you guys at all so uh, did I just say that can I claim injury give me some grace no you I would have said that in any case just to mess with you but I want you to hold on to that context statement about Jeremiah being contemporary with the situation because when we look at first and second chronicles next week or the week after um, you'll see a lot of the same material in first and second chronicles as occurs in first and second kings and it has a different author and I'm going to be able to tell you about something that has occurred in your lifetime that makes such a substantial difference in the way that we look at things that that will help really get hold of why context is important in studying the Bible. Okay, So hold on to those points of context. The main storylines I'd like to highlight, really this first and second Kings is establishing the royal throne of King David. It opens in a pretty fascinating way with Adonijah, one of David's sons, trying to establish himself as king and effectively trying to pull off a coup. Because even though King David is still alive, um, then uh, he's old. He's very old, and he's really winding down. And it's a very poignant description of King David's life at this point. 
and seeing his opportunity, Adonijah, one of the sons, and it's described in that in the passage that uh, he was one of the sons that David never disciplined. <laughs> Word to you folks who have short people at home. He tried to take over the throne. And when he did that then, was establishing his, 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 his kingship or royalty, whatever, monarchy, I guess. Then uh, what happened was Bathsheba came to David and said, hey, I thought Solomon was going to be the king. And he said, why, indeed he is. What's going on? And so then Solomon was established by David as the king of Israel, and uh, Adonijah was deposed. So it starts out pretty cool that way. Um, and then another element of the main storyline is it really talks about, as I said, all the kings of Judah, Israel and Judah from David all the way through the fall, which would have been the last king who I think was maybe Jehoiakim or Jehoiachin. I always get those two guys mixed up. I'd have to look it up. But the third element of the storyline was uh, Solomon's brilliant reign. Solomon, as a king, was brilliant. Said to be, obviously, his gift was what? Wisdom, of course. And that's what he asked for when God appeared to him the first time. He didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for Anything else, he asked for wisdom, and God gave it to him, and that was demonstrated in some pretty cool stuff throughout his reign. But what is really exciting is that Solomon's reign established a time of peace and prosperity for the kingdom. And so it was really the most peaceful time in the history of Israel was under Solomon's, was under Solomon's reign. And during that time, Solomon actually, as you may know, built the first temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. And so that the original temple of the Lord, which had been designed by David and substantially provided for by David, so the stuff was kind of ready. It's like the, by the way, Solomon, the temple kit is out by the, you know. Uh, and Solomon did also enlist some supplies and forced labor and stuff to get it done. But uh, David really had wanted to build this temple. It was in his heart to build a temple for God, you know. And, and um in the process, God spoke to him clearly and said, I, you know, I appreciate all that, but you're not the one to build it. And he said, the reason is because there's blood on your hands. And what I believe he meant by that is, you're not done fighting yet. It's not time to build the temple because you still have fighting to do. And then when Solomon took over, there was the fighting was substantially done. And so in a time of that peace and prosperity ordained by the Lord, then Solomon could raise up the temples. that make sense? Okay. But the, a huge part of the storyline in First and Second Kings is Solomon's tragic end. That Solomon really ended very, very badly, didn't he? And it's just tragic when you read it. It's heartbreaking. He ends his life badly, resulting in a fracturing of the kingdom into two entities. There was Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And these two entities, they lived not only in tension with one another, but at times war with one another. There was actually civil war between the north and the south. Can you imagine such a thing? And that was a terrible time in U.S. history. It was a terrible era for generations, actually, for the Israelites. Until, until the Assyrians gained enough power to conquer Israel, the nation, if you will, call it that at the time, but the political entity of Israel to the north and then the Babylonians 
then came to power and finished them off by conquering Jerusalem and ultimately all of Judah. So I guess the main storylines, if you really want to study the Bible, is get a hold of this, First and Second Kings. The, the books open in internal conflict with Adonijah trying to take over, and the books end in external conquest by the Babylonians. And I know, have a nice day, right? It's not very encouraging. Somebody say, can we please flip to Philippians now or something where rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. But this is the tone of the thing. And if you want to understand the Bible, you've got to really respect the tone of it. So that's the flyover, if you will, of First and Second Kings. Now, as you know, each week I just kind of try to get quiet before the Lord, which has not been that difficult. <laughs> it's been kind of demanded. Um, and just say, Lord, out of all this, what do you want to say to your people? What, what's the word of the Lord for today for us out of all this? What's the hot spot? And this week I've, uh, I felt drawn to go to 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. So if you want to turn in your Bibles there, and if you don't, then there's something wrong with you. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Or what I, yeah, Kings. By the way, if you don't own a Bible, may I say again, we would love to be the ones to give you one. Not if you didn't bring it, that's just bad. But if you don't own one, then if you'll stop, am I right? Do we still have some? Okay. We got lots at the welcome booth. If you do not own a Bible, we would love to be the people to put one in your hands. If you just stop by on your way out and say, I'd like one of those Bibles, then there's just a small credit application to fill out, and we'll give it to you. No, 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 no strings attached. We won't even ask you your name. First Kings chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, You must not intermarry with them, because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives. Seven. He's supposed to be the wisest man on the earth. I think he just fell a whole bunch of notches in my book. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. That means a harem of available women. And his wives led him astray. The word of the Lord. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David his father had done. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, 
the detestable God of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable God of the Ammonites. He did the same thing for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees which I commanded you, I most certainly, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David my servant and for the sake of Jerusalem which I have chosen. And that's a prophecy to the division of the kingdom into Israel and Judah. I think to understand this passage, we've got to understand that marriages were common, commonly used to form political and military alliances in those days. So a ruler would commonly have more than one wife because in the process of doing so, they could make peace and prosperity with a, perhaps a neighboring or even distant nation. So we see this. This was not an uncommon thing to do. And if you've read the Bible, you know that even David married Michal in order to form a favorable standing with the house of King Saul who was before him. So this was common. But 700 wives. 700 wives. 300 concubines. I mean, as those 700 women isn't enough to choose from? What was happening, I believe, is that Solomon had reached a place of such success and prosperity that he had forgotten the Lord. And he started out in such humility, and that's what the Lord honored him for was his humility. That when God came to him and said, what do you want? I'll give you anything. And he said, I just want wisdom. The Lord responded that because of your humility, because you did not ask for wealth and power, I will give you that and the other. And so in his wealth and in his power, Jesus said that that Solomon was clothed with such splendor that in his wealth and power, he forgot the Lord. And in the process of that, He just lived his life any way he wanted to without regard for the consequences. And because of this, he made alliances with other nations and this wife and that wife. And, well, we might as well add a harem of 300 concubines just to prove my power to the world. Perhaps this is it. But I want you to notice that in 1 Kings that the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote it, did not condemn Solomon for his polygamy but for what he allowed his many wives to cause him to do, which was to turn him away from the Lord. Now, you guys can understand this, right? I mean, 700 wives. I mean, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? And you only have to deal with one of her. 700 mamas. 
There could not have been a day that all 700 of them were happy. Am I right? And they were demanding that he respect the idols of the cultures from which they had come. And this section says there were primarily three. There were Ashtoreth, also known as Asherah, and other parts of the scripture. This was a Canaanite fertility god. And the, the idol of it was a pole, a tree, a trunk from which all the branches were stripped, so it was a pole sticking up out of the ground. It's a fertility god. I'll let you do the math. And they worshipped this. And at times it was actually carved up into the, into the image of this goddess. But they worshipped this, and they worshipped this in high places, which means wherever there was a high elevation, they would put it there. And they would worship this. I'm pretty sure it was King Manasseh who actually brought, later on, who brought one of these into the temple of God. And they worshipped this thing. And there was Molech, who was a Phoenician god, who demanded child sacrifice, human child sacrifice, that children be slaughtered at the foot of its altar. There was Chemosh, who was a, an underworld war god, who was presumably punishing the Moabites for allowing themselves to be conquered by the Israelites in an earlier conquest. And it says in the list that that Solomon married Moabite women and brought them in, and in the process, in comes Chemosh. Are you getting this? These are just the gods listed. And that raises a big problem, doesn't it? Because it says that the thing that raised the ire of God was that he allowed these women to turn him away from the one true living God. And this is the problem that arose in trying to blend all these people together was a problem called syncretism. Syncretism, it's spelled S-Y-N-C-R-E-T-I-S-M. Syncretism. And it's the attempt to bring together a variety of religious perspectives, religious elements, or religions themselves and make one big happy family out of it. Now the problem with syncretism is that it doesn't work. Because when you try to bring them all together, somebody has to compromise, and somebody has to compromise essential elements of what they said they believe in order for all of these things to work together in this way. And so you don't end up with that. You end up with one big unhappy family. It's called syncretism. And it demands compromise of essential elements of faith. Because when you syncretize, you have to compromise. Somebody has to give up. Somebody has to say, okay, I concede that so that we can all be together and we can honor one another's religions as equally valid. We have a big problem in our country today, and that is that our nation is trying to do this on the highest levels of government. And we are substantially trying to accommodate every other world religion in the name of something called multiculturalism. 
We're trying to make everybody happy. We're trying to accommodate everyone. And in the process, we're making essential compromises. There is only one time when you can consider every other religion as valid as yours, and that is when yours doesn't really mean anything to you anymore. When you consider a, some kind of a national platform where we say, well, let's, get all the, let's have a national prayer platform and let's get all the world religions represented, then the Christian who sits on that platform with that mindset has to compromise their belief in John 14.6 where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. They have to compromise that. They have to say, I don't believe that right now because all these other people on the platform have a valid approach to God. Now, beloved, I wish that were true. I wish that all roads do lead to Rome, but the Bible says that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And in Acts chapter 4, the Bible says, There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now you're saying you're being narrow-minded. There's one time you can afford to be narrow-minded, and that's when you're right. And I'm not being exclusive in a judgmental, critical way. I love those other people on the platform because that's the only way we're going to get them to hear the truth. But the truth is the truth. And we cannot say, I believe in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 5, but not 6. In John chapter 14, 1, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you're like, yeah, right? I believe that by the blood and power of Jesus. I believe that we're going to heaven after this. Well, then you can't stop the conversation there and say, I believe those first five verses, but I don't believe what Jesus said next. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Because if you don't believe six, then one through five doesn't make any difference. And this is syncretism. This is compromise. And this is the very thing that's happening at the highest levels of our society. And the mistake, I believe, that are being made by our federal government right now is that while their religion may not mean much of anything to them, they are making mis the mistake of aligning themselves with people whose religion means everything to them. They think everybody's playing by the same rules. What's wrong with our country today? It's not radicalized Muslims. It's not the growing number of radicalized Muslims. That's not what's wrong with our country today. What's wrong is the obvious lack of radicalized Christians. Where are you? Where are you? You have the most effective weapon in the universe, the blood of Jesus Christ. Where are you? Where are we? It's called syncretism. It's what's happened to Solomon. It's what destroyed him. It's what destroyed his kingdom. 
And there's not a reason in the world that it won't result in the ruination of our nation. There's no reason. Why would we expect a different result when the formula is so clear? Well, that might seem far away and bigger than what you want to think about, but I think you need to understand that this syncretism, this compromise is not only destroying our nation, but it's also destroying many of our families. The example of syncretism from government on down through society is producing a watered-down, rationalized version of our Christian faith in our homes. These alliances in Solomon's day required elements of compromise in order to maintain them. And it goes right back to rationalization, doesn't it? Well, it'll be all right. Well, you know, everybody has a right to believe what they want. Absolutely right. But the Scriptures are clear. And at the end of the day, the syncretism and this compromise is just another way of rejecting the authority of God. I know that's what you say, God, but we're the United States of America. Back to our passage, you know, this prohibition against intermarriage in this passage strongly says do not marry with them. Now, I want to say something loud and clear, and that's that the prohibition of intermarriage was not a racial issue in the slightest. And if that is an issue from you, for you, you're wrong and you need to get over it. Did you hear me? It's not a racial issue. It wasn't because these women were of a different race. Moses, the Bible says, took for himself a Cushite wife who in Egypt would have been a very dark-skinned woman. And his sister, Miriam, had a big problem with that, didn't she? And God said, all right, you have a problem with your brother marrying a dark-skinned woman? And the Bible says that God made her leprous. Leprous, it says, white as snow. That there's a form of leprosy that is this white, powdery, growth-type thing. That's the form of leprosy that God gave to Miriam when she was objecting. And so he said, oh, you like white? I will give you white. This prohibition for intermarriage was not a racial issue in the slightest. It was an issue of faithfulness to the one and true living God. And if you have 700 wives who had many different idolatrous viewpoints, then you have a household of chaos. This would have created a very disturbed and disturbing household. I mean, we're not talking about a marriage between a Presbyterian and a Baptist here. But this speaks to something, and I think it will be what I conclude with. We're not going to touch the ripple effect today. But it speaks to the essential importance of a quality foundation of spiritual agreement in our homes, in our marriages. It makes Paul's exhortations in Corinthians to, for believers to be not unequally yoked with unbelievers. It makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? You can't have it. You can't mix those things. They don't mix. I want to ask you a question. If I could show you something that would statistically 
dramatically increase your chances of a successful marriage, would you want to know about it, yes or no? You can apply this to a variety of relationships, but the subject on this is marriage. The failure rate of marriages in America is about one in two. Now, before I say another word, I have no judgment of you if you are a divorced person. I have no criticism of you. I did not walk in your shoes. I do not know what your world was like. I do not know what your hell was like. I don't know. I don't judge it. So don't let the devil do that to you, all right? But if I could show you a way to increase the probability of success, reduce the failure rate from 1 in 2 to 1 in 10, would you want to know about it? How about if I could show you a way to increase it or decrease the failure rate to less than 1 in 100, would you want to know about it? How about if I could show you a simple method which would statistically decrease the chances of failure uh, to less than 1 in 1,000, would you want to know about it? Yes? All right. Let me read you something from one of my favorite marriage books. It's by Smalley and Smalley, and it's entitled, Before You Plan Your Wedding, Plan Your Marriage. And it says, We found a Gallup poll done in 1997 by the National Association of Marriage Enhancement in Phoenix, Arizona. It showed the divorce rate among couples who go to church regularly is one out of two. Going to church regularly did not make a modicum of difference in the divorce rate. But, whereas for those who pray together regularly, the divorce rate is one out of 1,152. That's a divorce rate of less than 1%. Oh, there's more. But do you know the really amazing finding? We discovered that on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the best, the couples who prayed together every day rated their relational satisfaction an 8, while those who never prayed together related their relational satisfaction a 5. You don't have to be a researcher to see there's a huge difference. So what is the secret? Excuse me? Excuse me? Oh, there's... Somebody said it over here. What? Pray together. The answer is not individual prayer. The answer, according to everything I just showed you, is to pray together. And so I want to say to you couples, and especially to you men, who are charged to be the spiritual heads of your household, that if you are not praying together, then you are living a substantially less life, lower life than what God has intended for you. You are living on less. You are living on less if you haven't figured out how to pray together with your wife. And some of you guys are looking really nervous right now, a little terrified. And you're thinking, you know, Tom, thanks a lot. In a little while, I'm going to be sitting across the lunch table from my wife, and I hope to God she doesn't bring this up. And some of you guys are looking at me, and you're saying, 
Tom, I would do that, but I don't know how. I'm stuck, and I don't know how to take that step of leadership in my home. Here is your lucky day. If you don't know how, then I dare you this very afternoon to grab hold of your wife's hand and lead her into the bedroom and shut the door and bow your head and say, God, it's me, Jim. Unless your name is something else. I don't really know how to do this, but here we are. That's about all I got to say right now. And then look at your wife and say, you got anything to add, honey? And if she does, then let her pray. And if she doesn't, then say amen. And I dare you to do that. Listen, I dare you, I dare you, I dare you to do that this afternoon and tomorrow and every day for the next 33 days. And here is my, here is my dare. I dare you to do that for the next 33 days, men. And if you come back to me in 33 days and say there is no improvement in my life, I will give you $1,000. No, I don't know where I'm going to get the money, but I will do it. I am so sure of this. Some of you are going, Tom, you don't understand. I'm married to a really strong-willed woman. Are you freaking serious? But I know this. I know that the thing that my strong-willed woman is always waiting for me to do is to grab her hand and say, Carol, let's just pray about that for a minute. And that's what your wife is waiting for too. And I need to just characterize this for you as we get ready to go here. I I just need you guys to know uh, our marriage is not a never-ending prayer meeting. I mean, if you know Karen and you know me, you know how differently we are wired spiritually. And we do our individual devotional thing. We are oil and water. We have tried to do it together. And I'm like, who are you? And she's going, no, who are you? And so we definitely seek the Lord in our own ways. But this morning, this morning, when I grabbed her hand and said, let's pray, We prayed for less than 60 seconds. And in that 60 seconds, the Lord renewed our perfect harmony and unity in the power of the Holy Spirit, and that's what you want. The bar is not that high, guys. Father in heaven, come and do the thing that you had in mind to do when You flooded me with all this information which we've barely touched. I trust you, Lord, that this was the point of today, that this is what you had in mind. 
And so we bow before you now in the mighty name of Jesus, and we're so grateful for all the blessings that you have poured out on us as a people and as a nation, and we're so sorry that we're giving it away and we're throwing it into the seas. And so, God, we just want to say we don't feel like we have a lot of control over what happens at big levels of our nation, but we know what happens here. And we just want to say with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength that You are the living God. There is one true God, that Jesus is Your Son. We believe in You as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we invite You to come and be the one true exclusive God of the universe. God, I pray for every person in this room who has heard this word. I pray. I pray that whatever the arrow was that you intended to land on their heart or whatever water you intended to pour into their dry places, Father God, that you would come now in these remaining minutes of our gathering together and that you would do what you want to do. And Father, my heart is broken for the lost today, for those who have not yet made the crossing from death to life. For those who have not yet surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. And I pray that today would be the day, Father, that they would bow to You, they would confess their sin, and they would receive the fullness of the cross of Christ on their sin and the fullness of the power of God by the Spirit coming and indwelling them today. So, Father, just do what You want to do in the ways that You want to do it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together, church. Pastor Tony is going to come and lead us ministry time.